Thank you, Gene. We've been studying through the, the book of Genesis, and so we're in chapter 12. Or, yeah, chapter 12, <laughs> verses 10 to 20 today. So again, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. We're going to be talking um, about trials after triumphs. You'll understand that a little bit as we get into this passage this morning, but I want to read to you some text messages, or a text message from, they call him Pastor X. He uh, works in the Middle East, <clears throat> and uh, when they do interviews with him, they always, you know, kind of cover his face and different things like that and change his voice a little bit. But he's writing to a text message to Jenny Allen. Um, she um, had him speak uh, and share during the IF conference, the women's conference this past year, and so he's texting her about what's going on in Afghanistan right now. So this is what he says. Jenny, as you know, we reach and raise up locals that carry the work into the countries we serve. Things drastically shifted for our teams in Afghanistan overnight. Believers are scattered and literally running for the hills, hiding in the mountains and caves with just the clothes on their back. Winter will be approaching, and we are working on getting aid and relief to these teams ASAP. Taliban is taking girls 15 years and younger from their families and raping then trafficking them. Also killing husbands with young wives and doing the same. Taliban has a quote-unquote list of Christians and churches. Believers are being hunted. Most of our leaders there are indigenous, so they are Afghan, which means they can't leave unless they flee as refugees, but unfortunately the surrounding countries are closing the borders. So that's his text message. And I'm, you know, I'm just telling you this morning, the Afghan Christian's faith is being tested like never before. There's real fear of death for young husbands and fear of being violated by young wives and girls. And so they're running scared. And, and they're, they're having to trust God that he's faithful in the midst of that. And, uh, you know, they've had a, a period of time where um, they've been able to serve, they've been able to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ without fear. And that's changed. Everything is different now. So they're seeing tests there for some triumphs. So you've been learning over the past uh, several weeks about our faith journey into full-time pastoral ministry. You've learned that we moved a lot during our 30 years of marriage, and I shared that we had to take steps of faith during some of those moves. Obviously, we had fears and doubts, and our faith was weak at some times in, in those faith steps that we had to take. <clears throat> when we were getting ready to move from Ohio to Missouri, we had to decide what to do with our dog socks. We'd had socks for a little while, and we were certain that we were going to have to rent either an apartment or a house when we got to Missouri, and we didn't want to have to figure out what to do with our dog. Like, would we even be able to have a dog in a rented house or apartment? So we were trying to find um, a new home for him because we didn't want to take him to the pound. And during the time that we were trying to figure this all out, and it was kind of becoming a barrier in, in taking this step of faith in, into this move, uh, Sox didn't listen to Judy's verbal command to stop and was hit by a minivan and killed. <laughs> That's not what we had hoped for. That's not the outcome. But the decision about what to do with him had been made. I remember Wade coming to us right after that happened, and he said, I wasn't ready for Socks to die. Well, <laughs> we weren't either. Um, but that obstacle to our move had been removed. And so when I look back on that situation now, I can see that our faith was weak. Boy, why, why didn't we just trust God by faith 
and, and take the dog with us. See, this is what happened. When we got to Missouri, we realized that there were very few apartment complexes where we were going to be living. We were in a small town outside of St. Louis, um, and there were a very limited number of houses for rent. And so what we did is we bought a house. <laughs> so we could have taken our dog with us. And, and, and so things could have been different had we just trusted God by faith. Ultimately, God is in control and will accomplish his plan, even if that plan may bring us or others heartache. And so every one of us can probably recall a time when we knew uh, that God was faithful to us through a difficult time. I want you to just think about that today. Our faith may have wavered during that time because we couldn't see how God was going to pull us through, how he was going to provide for us. And we're not alone in our doubts and our fears and our weakened faith. Abram was about to face some difficult situations in his life. Would he trust God by faith to take care of him and his family, or would he try to work it out in his own strength? Abram's going to learn a a very important lesson about God's faithfulness, as we see in this passage of Scripture today. It's a lesson that we have to learn as well. And that lesson is our big idea today. When we're faithless, God is faithful. Even in the midst of our faithlessness, God is faithful. And so let's just commit this to a passage to the Lord in prayer this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we come to you, and we confess this morning that there are times, perhaps more often than we would like, where we are just faithless. We've allowed circumstances in our life to to affect how we act and think. And Lord, we don't even turn to you in those times because our faith is so weak. And so we can just confess that before you today. And as we go through this passage and we see your faithfulness, that's what's really highlighted here, Lord God, is your faithfulness. I pray, Lord God, that it would encourage and strengthen us today. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through your cracked and chipped vessel today. Lord, as always, I pray that only your words would would fall on hearts and minds and that any words that are not yours would just be blown away like chaff. And so, Lord, we just commit this to you now. We ask this in your precious son's name. Amen. Almost lost my contact there. That would have been fun. (laughs) it's already hard to read but let's look at uh, chapter 12 verses 10 to 13 this point's called deception God's word tells us this now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe as he was about to enter Egypt he said to his wife Sarai I know what a beautiful woman you are when the Egyptians see you they will say this is his wife Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Uh, Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well uh, for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. So there was this famine in Canaan while Abram was traveling through the land. We saw last week that's what he was doing. He was traveling through the land. He had stopped at several different places and and, uh, set up camp and and, had built a couple of altars and and different things like that to kind of claim the land for God. And He's heading, as, as we saw last week, he's heading then to the Negev. Um, and so that's kind of where the story picks up. He's traveling through there, and this great famine happens in Canaan. It, it, we're told that it's a heavy, grievous, burdensome famine. So it's not just a minor famine. It's not something that he's going to be able to ride out on his own for just a couple of months, though. This was going to be a significant famine. 
that was taking place. Perhaps he'd already run out of food at this point. And so he's trying to decide what to do. Now, it would not have been uncommon um, for famines to hit Canaan because the climate there depended on rainfall to sustain any kind of productivity. So they're, they're relying on rain, and if it didn't rain, then it was going to be a, a famine. And, and this one was particularly severe, so probably they hadn't had rain in quite some time. Now, Egypt was different. Even though it's in the same region of the world, uh, the climate there in Egypt was a little bit different in the fact that it depended on the Nile River, and, and it flooded every year without fail. So they constantly had uh, what they needed in order, the moisture that they needed in order to grow crops. And so the, they, Egypt wasn't experiencing a famine at this time. That's why he's heading down to Egypt. Abram decides that he will travel down to Egypt to live there for a while since the famine was so heavy. And then we see <clears throat> his fear. He has this, just this fear about going down there. When I first read the update from Afghanistan from uh, Pastor X about how the Taliban is killing husbands with young wives, it made me think of what Abraham was feeling and experiencing. Just think about that for a minute. He's, this is what he's experiencing. He's like, if we go down here and they realize that I'm uh, Sarah, Saul Rai's uh, husband and she's beautiful, they're going to kill me. They're just going to take me out and then take her um, as their wife. So he was fearful that some Egyptian was going to do that, just kill him and take a Sarai as his wife. And so he knows <clears throat> how beautiful Sarai was, and he told her. He told her here as he's getting ready to enter Egypt. So guys, I want to make sure that you tell your wives how beautiful they are. Trust me, they'll be encouraged to hear it. So you don't have to do it right now, um, but <laughs> sometime today. Just tell your wife how beautiful she is. She needs to hear that. She'll be encouraged by it. Now, this is incredible because Sarai, or Sarah, is 65 years old. Now, you're going, what? we think about a 65-year-old, and we're like, well, that's a grandparent with, you know, retirement age, and we're not really, but mind you, Sarai is in midlife. She lived to 127 years old, so 65 is midlife, you know, she's, I don't know what 40 is today, I don't know. <laughs> Anyhow, she's, a, she's still a very beautiful woman, and, and, uh, Abram tells her that, and uh, the old adage is true, I think, here, is that beauty is more than skin deep as well. Now, the Egyptians were going to see her, just the physical beauty, because they didn't know her, but Abram knew her, and it would include not just her physical beauty, but um, her dignity, her bearing, her countenance, the way she carried herself. So, like, you know, Abram's, like, loving her more and more every day because he's seeing all of these qualities in her in addition to her physical beauty, now, one commentary states this. The, the phrase that they use here for beauty um, uh, also is used to describe a fine specimen of cow. Now, I know that livestock were an indicator of wealth in the ancient Near East, and I have no idea if comparing a beautiful woman to a fine cow was a compliment during that time or not. But I'm here to tell you, fellas, today, it is not a compliment to compare your wife to a fine cow. In our culture today, not good. Please don't do it when you tell her that she's beautiful this afternoon. Do not say you are so beautiful like that Holstein or like that. You know, just don't do it. I'm telling you, you're going to be sleeping outside in the rain. So Abram is fearing for his life. He's afraid that as Saul rise husband, he will be killed and she will be taken as some Egyptian's wife. Waltke says Abraham's fear demonstrates a lack of trust in God's recent promises. Had Abraham forgotten the Lord's promises? We just read about them last week. 
It was these threefold promises with a blessing, every one of them. The Lord promised to make him into a great nation. Had Abraham forgotten that? Like, he's not going to die when he goes to Egypt. God had promised he was going to make him a great nation. The Lord promised to make his name great. How's that going to happen if he dies really quickly? You know that? And then the Lord promised to treat others the same way they treated Abram. And so fear can cause us to not think clearly. I think that's what's going on here. Abram's just not thinking clearly. He's all about self-preservation at this point. Abram was only thinking about himself. So he says to his wife, tell them that you are my sister so that they will treat me well and my life will be spared. Now, this is a half-truth, right? We know that Sarai was from, uh, had the same father as Abram, but not the same mother. So he, they were a half-brother and sister. And he's just telling us half. But I read, a half-truth is a full lie. It's just a lie, straight up. So um, it, there's no difference between a white lie and a black lie, if you ever thought about those things. It's, it's all the same. Um, <clears throat> so he just wants to make sure that he doesn't die and that he's treated well. And that just leads us to principle number one this morning, that human wisdom is flawed. <laughs> human wisdom is flawed. I mean, he thought that this was a great plan. We're going to see that it wasn't in just a little bit. But we see human wisdom uh, explained in Scripture. The writer of Proverbs says this in chapter 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. And in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 2, it says, all a man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. In Proverbs chapter 16, I was going to read verses 2 to 25, but I just um, want to read verse 25 to you, because it once again says this, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. And so the writer of Proverbs is, is bringing this truth back uh, multiple times and, and telling us, you know, we think that we know what's wis- what wisdom is. We think we know what's best and what's right. But if we aren't consulting God, it's not what's best or right. And sometimes our, our human wisdom can be flawed when we're not turning to God and seeking his face. Then we see God's wisdom. Isaiah, the prophet, writes this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's the kind of God that we serve. That's the kind of God that we need to turn to in the midst of our our difficulties, in the midst of hardships. That's who we need to seek wisdom from. And then James tells us this in the book that he writes in chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. So God even asks us, you know, to cry out to him for wisdom. He promises to give us that wisdom. And if we were truly honest with ourselves, we would admit that we often try to use our own wisdom and strength to resolve the difficulties that we're facing. (laughs) Calling on the Lord seems to be our final step instead of our first step. Most of the time, it's true that with age and life circumstances come wisdom. The older we get, the more we turn to the Lord first instead of last. I know that's true in my life. I I think I shared last week or a couple of weeks ago, you know, just about when there's times now where instead of worrying about something, I'm just stopping right away, and I'm just praying and saying, God, it's in your hands. Whatever you want to do, however you want to work this out, I'm just trusting you. And the Lord's wisdom is far greater than ours. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He knows what's best for us. And when we seek his face and his wisdom, he promises to guide our steps. Aren't you glad? 
And so that leads us to the first next step today. It's on the back of your communication card. Maybe this is a step you're ready to take, and that's to seek the Lord's wisdom first in every difficulty I face. I pray that you'll take that step today. And may, perhaps you're in the middle of a difficult situation right now, and you haven't sought the Lord's wisdom yet. Guess what? It's not too late. You can do it today. You can pause and just say, God, I'm in the middle of this thing, and I haven't even thought to consult you, but I am right now. It's just never too late to stop and cry out to him. Abram's wisdom was flawed. He was only thinking about himself. He was allowing fear to guide him instead of faith. He was focusing only on himself, which meant that he was not thinking about Saul Rai and how, this, how his human wisdom and plan would affect her. And that's where the complication comes in. That's the second point today. Look at verses 14 to 16. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a, a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram required sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants, and camels. <clears throat> So Abram knew how beautiful and blessed he was to have uh, Sarai as his wife. What he didn't count on is who else would take notice of her beauty. And it was Pharaoh. The Egyptians saw how beautiful she was, and the officials praised her when they told Pharaoh about her. And Pharaoh obviously agreed with their assessment and took her into his palace, meaning that she became part of his harem. She was another one of his wives. Powerful leaders in the ancient Near East like Pharaoh would have had multiple wives as a status symbol, but they also did it for this reason, and this is what Walton says, rulers did not see marriage as a means of fulfilling their lust for woman, though, they, though that may occasionally be the case, but often as a means of fulfilling their lust for power. Their harems were filled with those whom they had married to cement political alliances. So marriage between ruling families of various nations was a common practice to solidify peace and treaties. And of course, in that whole process, there's a bride price that was always paid to the father, or in this case, the brother or guardian of Sarai. So Pharaoh treated Abram well as the brother or guardian of, of Sarah, Sarai. Gangle and Bramer say wealth in the ancient Middle East was not measured in gold, but in animals, slaves, and land. And so Abram receives animals and slaves. He received flocks, which were sheep and goats, and herds, which were oxen, bulls, and cows. He had donkeys, both male and female, given to him, and camels. Now, the male donkeys were used to carry things. Female donkeys were used to carry people. Camels were used to carry both things and people. And camels were a sign of wealth and prestige because they were rare during this time. And then he also receives male and female servants, and I want you to keep that in mind as we continue the narrative on Abraham in the coming weeks, especially as it pertains to Hagar and Ishmael. There's still going to be consequences for Abram's actions here. <clears throat> Even though Abram doesn't plan for the complication of Saul Rai becoming a part of Pharaoh's harem, he benefits greatly from this half-truth about her. And here's principle two. God is faithful even when we're faithless. Aren't you glad? He's still faithful. It's one of his attributes. It's who he is. Abram wasn't trusting the Lord to provide for him in Canaan and to protect him in Egypt, yet God still blessed Abram in spite of his faithlessness. God kept his promise to Abram to bless him. This narrative is more about God's faithfulness than Abram's failures. 
I want us to understand that today. You know, we could really focus a lot on Abram and what happened here and, and you know, really um, get, on, get on ourselves and be negative towards ourselves. We, yeah, we're, we're faithless too. And da, da, da. But it's, this is so much more about God's faithfulness than about Abram's failures. It's so reassuring to know that God's faithfulness to us is not based on our faithfulness to him because we fail so often. He is still faithful when we fail him, when we doubt him, when we allow fear to control our thoughts and actions. He still blesses us in spite of our failures. This is something we can and should worship and praise the Lord for. And that leads us to our second next step today. Maybe you're ready to say this to the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness and for blessing even when I fail you. And so that next step is just to thank the Lord for his faithfulness and blessing even when I fail him. We should never neglect to confess to the Lord that we have failed him and allow our doubts and fears to control our thoughts and actions. And that's our third next step today is just to confess to the Lord my failures, doubts, and fears. It's all a part of what we should be doing. And while Abram's faithfulness created a complication, God was in control and he had a resolution ready. That's our third point today. Look at verses 17 to 20. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So we see God's protection here. Even in Abram's unfaithfulness, even in his fear and doubt, God is still protecting him and taking care of him. That leads us to principle number three, that God is in control. Even when Abram was driven by survival to make decisions about his, uh, about his, on his own, I should say, going to Egypt and telling a half-truth, God's plan for he and Sarai would not be thwarted. God would keep his promise of providing a great nation through Abram and Sarai, not Pharaoh and Sarai. The Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household. Now, we're not told what these serious diseases are, <clears throat> but Matthews in his commentary say diseases translates the Hebrew for plagues, which is the same word describing the ten plagues against Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. The term refers to skin disease in Mosaic legislation, as you see in Leviticus 13. And the verbal form describes the leprous judgment by the Lord against Uziah in 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 5. You know, perhaps, perhaps the diseases were sexual in nature, which enabled Sarai to be preserved from dishonor and for God's plan to remain intact. We don't know. We don't know what those diseases were. We just know that it kind of like stopped everything from happening in, in Pharaoh's uh, harem. You see, God is in control of your circumstances too. Even if you've been driven by survival to make decisions on your own, God's plan for you cannot be thwarted. He has a resolution ready. And that takes us to the fourth next step today, and it's to recognize that God is in control and trust him to accomplish his plan for my life. I hope you take that step today, especially if you're just wondering what's going on. God protected Abram and Sarai, even in their failures. Gangle and Bramer say Abram's sin brought God's judgment on Pharaoh's house, but in a true demonstration of biblical grace, God overcame Abram's sin, forgave his lie, and sent him back to the land. He's like, you shouldn't be in Egypt. You need to be back in Canaan. And we see Pharaoh's rebuke 
Abram's fear caused him to doubt and question the ethics of the Egyptian people. He thought he knew and understood their ethics, but in reality, he was not aware of their ethic of absolute truthfulness. He learned two pivotal spiritual lessons, truth and trust. He learned that he could trust the Lord to take care of him no matter what. And he also learned that truthfulness is important, but as we'll see in a later uh, narrative, he struggled with truthfulness one more time. And so did his son. When Pharaoh learned the cause of the serious diseases that he and his household were experiencing, he confronted Abram. Now, we're not told how Pharaoh found out. Perhaps God told him. You know, they would have dreams and different things, uh, these leaders. Perhaps uh, Sarah came clean and explained that she and Abram were actually husband and wife. <clears throat> and uh, however it happened, he immediately summoned Abram. And he asked some two questions. A what question and two why questions is, what, what, are, what have you done to me? This is your fault. I have this disease, these diseases because of you, because of the wrath of your, your God. And why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? So he says, here's your wife. Leave and take your stuff with you. Pharaoh restores Sarah to Abram. He then tells Abram to take her and go. Pharaoh didn't take any chances that Abram would just like go outside of the city and still stay in Egypt. He's like, no, I'm sending you know, this special personal escort to make sure that you get out of our country. Because he, he wanted these diseases to be gone. He wanted the wrath of God to be removed. Notice that Pharaoh did not demand that Abram return the flocks, herds, donkeys, camels, and servants. I find that interesting. Now, maybe he did. I don't know. It's not recorded. And we know that as he travels then back into Canaan, as we'll see next week, uh, and with, with he and Lot, that they, they just have too much to stay together. So God was blessing Abram even through his failures. And it takes us back to our big idea today that when we're faithless, God is faithful. Oh, what a, what a blessed truth. We can trust that God has a resolution to our problem and that he will protect us and provide for us. We just have to trust him. And as we review a little bit today, I just want to encourage you with these thoughts again. Seek the Lord's wisdom first when confronted with any difficulty. Thank the Lord for his faithfulness even when we fail him. Confess to the Lord any failures, the doubts, and fears that you have. And then recognize that God is in control and trust him to accomplish his plan for your life. As body of believers, we need to encourage one another to seek the Lord's wisdom. So someone's coming and talking to you about a difficult situation they're in. Say, have you talked to the Lord about it? Have you taken it to him? Have you sought his wisdom? We can encourage one another to express our gratitude for God's faithfulness in the things that he's done, how he's taken care of us and provided for us. And we can encourage one another to confess our failures to the Lord and to trust God to sovereignly control our lives. That's what we need to do as a body of believers. In conclusion today, I want to read this illustration to you from the movie, The Count of Monte Cristo. It tells the story of Dante's, who is unjustly accused and sentenced to life in France's most dreaded prison. After 13 years, he escapes, becomes wealthy, and then seeks revenge on those who ruined his life. Throughout the movie, Dante struggles deeply with his belief in God, moving from a simple faith to a loss of faith and finally to a mature faith. During his years in prison, Dante makes friends with a wonderful priest whose godly influence has a huge impact on Dante's spiritual understanding. 
Together they dig a tunnel to escape, but just before it's completed, a cave-in injures the priest. As he lies dying on the stone floor of his cell, the priest gives Dante's a treasure map that he'd hidden all these years in prison, <clears throat> which ends up making Dante's wealthy. But it's the priest's final words that stick with Dante's forever. When they asked me about the treasure of Sparta, I lied, the priest confesses. You lied, Dante's asked? I'm a priest, not a saint. He then tells Dante's how to use the map to find the treasure. When you escape, the priest continues, use the treasure for good, only for good. No, Dante says angrily, I will surely use it for my revenge. This is your final lesson. Do not commit the crime, the priest struggles for a breath. Do not commit the crime for which you now serve the sentence. God said, vengeance is mine. Dante says, but, but I don't believe in God. It, it doesn't matter, the priest responds with a smile. He believes in you. Moments later, the priest dies and Dante's escapes. Not only do the priest's words help Dante's discover the treasure, by the end of the movie, they help Dante's rediscover the God who is faithful even when we are faithless. God believes in the worth of human or fallen humanity. As Romans 8.31 says, God is for us. See, in our faithlessness, God is still faithful. He is for us. He's concerned about us. He wants us to be uh, in his will, accomplishing his purposes. And sometimes we have tests through triumphs or after triumphs come. And I want to encourage you that during that time that you just turn to the Lord and seek his wisdom. And so as we allow that to just sink into our hearts and minds today, would you bow your heads as Gina Roxy come to lead us in the closing hymn? Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your word. It's so powerful, Lord God. It, it works in, in incredible ways in our hearts and minds. And I just pray today that that we would recognize that when we are faithless, you are still faithful. Lord God, will we seek your wisdom? Will we rejoice in the time that we see your faithfulness at work in our lives? Will we confess the times where we have allowed fear and doubt to just um, affect our thinking and our decision-making? Lord, we just commit ourselves to you now. Would you transform us by the power of your word? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.